Our scripture reading for today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you as we continue to look into the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to a passage that is no doubt a very familiar one. This event is recorded in in three out of the four Gospels. It is included in most children's Bibles, and it is depicted with breathtaking terror and beauty in Rembrandt's famous painting, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which you may have come across before. But while you've likely heard this passage preached uh, maybe even a number of times, I have found that unfortunately the primary message of these verses is often minimized or missed altogether. The ultimate lesson here is not about Jesus calming the storms in your life. Nor do we find a promise here that Jesus will see you safely to every destination that you set for yourself. The calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee is first and foremost about being confronted with the nature of Jesus Christ, truly man, yet truly God. And there are a number of comforts to be drawn from that truth, but unless we rightly understand that this is the primary purpose of this passage, we cannot rightly apply it to our lives. So let's look here. We are in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. I encourage you to turn there if you haven't already done so. First, it's necessary for us to set the scene as we see in the passage just above this one, Jesus had already decided to get into a boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds were increasingly pressing in on him, no doubt as a result of the many miraculous healings that he had just performed. And as the event unfolds, we're helped by the fact that there are parallel passages to be found in chapter 4 of Mark and in chapter 8 of Luke that give us additional detail, and I'll bring those in at several points in the message. We see earlier in Matthew 8 that Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. We see Mark and Luke both say that he, being Jesus, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. It was Jesus's idea and expressed desire to get into a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Now I point that out to make clear that the disciples are not about to find themselves in a dangerous situation because they weren't keeping an eye on the weather like they should have been. 
They did not make a bad decision and then reap the consequences of that decision. That is not what has taken place here. Jesus commanded. He ordered them that they go out onto the sea, and he was not unaware of what was about to take place. And this fact greatly impacts how we are to understand this passage, and therefore it impacts how we are to apply it. So having established those important details, let's examine this passage together. We're going to approach these verses by first looking at, one, the danger of the disciples, and secondly, the deity of Christ. First, let's consider the danger of the disciples. So after a very long day, Jesus and his disciples get into a boat on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and they set out for the opposite bank. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not a small lake. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the geography of the Holy Land, but it's roughly 13 miles long and about seven miles wide. So it's, it's a good-sized body of water. And because of a mountain range that is there to the east, and the fact that the sea itself is about 700 feet below sea level, it's very common for cool air from the mountains to mix with the warmer air off the sea to really create a, a wind tunnel and bring these downdrafts that create and bring sudden violent storms out on the Sea of Galilee. It continues to happen to this day. And after they've started out, we read in verse 24, And behold... And remember, any time that you see the word behold, the biblical author is telling you to pay attention as something remarkable is about to take place. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Luke's gospel adds to the end of this part of the story that uh, is really an understatement that they were in danger. They were in danger, and indeed they were in danger. This was not a small thunderstorm or some choppy waves that they were experiencing. The word that Matthew uses to describe the storm is unusual. It is uh, seismos, from which we get our word seismic, so having to do with an earthquake. This was a shaking of the very earth below them. This was a terrific storm. Other translations render this word storm as tempest. Well, Luke and Mark called a windstorm or a whirlwind or as in the NASB, a fierce gale. So no matter what you call it, the point is that they found themselves in mortal danger with the waves breaking into the boat and threatening to drown them in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever been driving on a road at night and been caught in a bad storm, you understand a little, a very little bit about what that fear is like where you start to get concerned that you might be in some significant trouble. Well, imagine that scenario, but take away the headlights and leave yourself in the dark and take away the warm air-conditioned canopy that you are in inside the vehicle and then take away the solid ground so that you are bobbing up and down in the sea and you get a better picture of the seriousness of their situation. They are in the dark. They are caught in a terrible storm. They are soaking wet, being tossed violently side to side, up and down on the waves. They cannot control the boat and it is filling with water, Luke's gospel tells us. 
And it's clear to all on board that unless something should change quickly, they are all going to die. And they're terrified. But remember, these are not novices who have never been on a boat before. Several of Jesus' disciples were professional fishermen. So Andrew, Peter, James, John, they would have pretty much been raised on the Sea of Galilee. They would have experienced storms while on the water before. And even they are afraid. But Jesus is asleep. Jesus, who is utterly exhausted he used this time away from the constant crowds to get some much-needed rest. As commentator Matthew Henry says on this verse, he slept to show that he was really and truly man and subject to the sinless infirmities of our nature. Christ was without sin, but he was truly man. He was subject to all the infirmities of our nature. He was tired perhaps more tired than you or I have ever experienced in our lives, and so he slept. He needs rest as much as you or I do. But they are in grave danger. So the disciples turn to the only one who can possibly help them in their hopeless situation. There are no life rafts. There are no life jackets. There is no Coast Guard. So they turn to the Lord, and they find him asleep seemingly unaware of the imminent death that is about to swallow all of them up. Verse 25, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Notice that they don't shout out, Save us, Lord, we are about to perish. They don't shout out, Save us, Lord, we are in danger of perishing. No, they say, We are Perishing. It's in the present tense. So serious was their danger, they considered themselves to be actively in the process of meeting their death. We are dying. In Mark's gospel, we read that they gave more than just this exclamation of fear. They woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The we here includes Jesus as well. The disciples are asking, how is it that he can be sleeping when all of them are about to die? Is he not concerned? Is he so indifferent to the danger around them that he doesn't even wake up on his own? Does he not care about them anymore? Well, it's here that the story pivots in in the most dramatic of fashions, the account immediately turns from focusing on the danger of the disciples to presenting to us the deity of Christ, that is, Christ's godhood, the fact that he is God in the flesh. Let's look now at the deity of Christ. So with the storm still raging, the boat still being tossed about violently on the waves and still filling with water. They're being swamped. The boat is being taken below the waterline. The disciples are still expecting to die at any moment. Jesus wakes up and he asks them a question. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Before he rebukes the wind and the sea, Christ saw it necessary to first rebuke his disciples. 
Now, he's not merely asking a question to gain information about the situation. He's not being startled awake and asking, why are you afraid? What is happening? As you or I might as someone to, wor- to wake us up in such a situation. No, this is, this is a, a rebuke in the form of a question. Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. And that can be difficult to understand. What exactly have they gotten wrong here? And I really hesitate to conclude that it was, it was only the fear itself that demonstrated a lack of faith. There's a, a movie quote I appreciate in which Sherlock Holmes quips that fear is wisdom in the face of danger. And the disciples, as we have established, were very much in danger. So fear is the natural result of that. But clearly, they responded to that danger in a way that did, dem- did not demonstrate great faith. Their fear led them to demonstrate very little faith. Well, what was it that happened? That, well, they panicked. They lost sight of everything else. They did not even process whether it was likely that God would let his Messiah drown in a lake. They concluded that they were all going to die despite Jesus' assertion at the outset that they were going to the other side. Jesus had set the destination and they could have had confidence that they would, in fact, reach it. Most significantly, their danger caused them to doubt Christ's concern for them. Don't you care that we are perishing? Their faith in his mission as the Messiah, in his direction to get in the boat and go to the other side, and in his character of loving concern for them should have shaped their response to the situation. And so Jesus asked them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Well, having rebuked the disciples, Jesus turns to rebuke the storm. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This rebuke to the winds and to the waves is expressed more fully in Mark's gospel. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea saying, peace, be still. Jesus essentially tells the storm to knock it off. And like an obedient dog responding to the command of its master, the storm ceases instantly, immediately. It was not the case that things began to get better and the rain eventually reduced to a drizzle And the waves gradually went from raging to being a gentle rocking. And everyone decided later that, you know, it was about the time that Jesus woke up that things really turned a corner. That is not what has taken place here. No, when Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to be still, they were still. He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, a great calm. Calm, the the Greek word here used to describe the level of calmness is megas, which we get the word, you can hear it in there, we get the word mega. It was mega calm. It was super calm. It was extremely calm. 
The storm had been raging. Their ship was being swamped by the waves. They were going to drown alone in the dark. And Jesus says three words, and suddenly, you know, it's a real nice evening to be out on the lake. And what is the response of the disciples after having witnessed such great things? And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They were in awe of what had taken place, but it was more than mere shock or surprise. Luke says they were afraid, and they marveled. Mark writes, they were filled with great fear. This is another area that is so often misrepresented about this passage. Jesus did not calm this storm in order to calm his disciples' fear. If anything, they are now more afraid than they were a moment ago. Why is that? Why are they filled with great fear? Well, because now they're faced with the undeniable reality that the man whom they had been following was no mere man, but was instead God in the flesh. And an encounter with the living God always results in fear. Throughout the Old Testament, we see when someone encounters God, the response is fear and trembling. When someone encounters a messenger from God, even, the result is fear and trembling. And so they are filled with great fear and they marvel and they ask themselves, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The answer, this is the God-man, Christ Jesus. There is no other conclusion for them to reach. Who else controls the wind? Who else controls the sea? Who else commands the weather? Psalm 135.7 tells us that it is God who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Proverbs 30 asks, who has gathered the wind in his fists or wrapped up the waters in a garment while making clear that the answer is God alone? Similarly, Psalm 65.7 asks, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves? Psalm 89.9, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 93, 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And that Lord on high is in the boat with them. The disciples have been confronted with the undeniable truth that the one who is within arm's length of them in this boat on the Sea of Galilee is not merely a man sent from God, but is God himself. Do you see why this absolutely has to be the main point of this passage? What is the main takeaway that the disciples had once they finally got back on solid ground? Do you think they gathered around and said to one another, you know, that was a good reminder that if God takes you to it, he can take you through it. And always remember when life gets tough, Jesus has your back. That is not the main takeaway that they had from this event. Jesus just controlled the winds and the waves with his voice. 
They marveled at the realization that Jesus is God. That's the point of what has just taken place. The uncreated creator of all things is in the boat with them. The infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal God is close enough for them to touch and to speak with. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And what a tremendous shock this must have been. On top of the emotional roller coaster they had just went through, they were, they were worn out and exhausted alongside Jesus and his ministry. They suddenly enter into mortal danger and even more suddenly are saved. And now they have the shock of witnessing Jesus, their friend, their master, do what only God can do. And so, of course, they're surprised and in awe and a little more than afraid. And I think we can be too hard on the disciples sometimes. Remember, they're only at this point in chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel. We have the benefit of all the rest of scripture. We know how the story ends. But keep in mind that they knew Jesus to be very much human. They walked with him. They ate with him. They drank with him. He expressed joy and sadness. He was so exhausted from his day's work that he fell asleep in the middle of a storm at sea. They knew Jesus was a man. And so tired and, and soaking wet and passing from fear to fear, they struggle to grasp what they have just seen. They ask themselves, what manner of man is this? And the reader is forced to ask the same question. The Gospels are content to not rush the story forward and, and provide a deep theological treatise at this point. Instead, continuing to unfold the events as they happened in their steady march towards the climax of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. But with the benefit of hindsight... And the whole of the canon of scripture and about 2,000 years of doctrinal development, we can see clearly what the disciples struggled to comprehend. That not only is Jesus Christ truly man, he is truly God. This is what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. Two distinct natures in one person. In our passage, we witness both of these natures of Christ, his humanity and his deity. And we are called to marvel as his disciples did at this truth. Because unlike the disciples at this point in the gospel narrative, we know how redemptive history unfolds. We know that Christ did not come merely to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to calm a storm, to raise the dead. He did not come merely to set an example of holiness or to correct the hypocrisy of the Pharisees or teach us how to love each other. He did not come to overthrow the Romans and ascend to some earthly throne. Jesus Christ came to die and in order for his death to secure our salvation, it was absolutely vital that he be both human and divine. He had to be both man and God. He had to be human so that he could identify with us in our suffering and in our temptation. 
He had to be human in order to serve as payment for humanity's debt of sin against God and for him to give his life on the cross. God cannot die. Humanity can experience death. He also had to be God, for only an infinite person can fully satisfy the infinite debt of sin against a holy God. He had to be God so that he could overcome the grave in victory over sin and death at his resurrection. In order for Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, he had to be truly man and truly God. And we see both of these natures at work in a single passage asleep, exhausted from a day's labor in one moment, and in power and authority over the very wind and waves in the next. So what are we to say to such great things? The first and ultimate application of our, of our text is for us to sit in awe and wonder at the truth that God the Son became man and lived and died for us. The notion of a, a distant, unloving God who is only ever wrathful towards his creation disappears when you know that God sent his own son to die for us, to forgive us our sins and to secure salvation for us for all eternity. Moreover, because our debt became his debt, his victory became our victory. His righteousness, our righteousness. His Father, our Father. His inheritance, our inheritance. And only after we take in the truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and consider all the amazing ramifications that that has can we further apply this text to our lives? We have to understand that Jesus Christ is God. And at that point, all the application of this text become more comforting, more wonderful, not less so for having spent our time to focus on what is primary in the passage before us. And while, as I said, I, I believe this passage is often misunderstood, it is misapplied. It is, is made to promise more than Scripture promises. It is used to tell people in the midst of difficulties that, that Jesus will absolutely cause this storm to go away. You absolutely will get to where you intended to get to, and I am afraid that the text makes no such promise. For sometimes that storm does not cease. Sometimes the storm proves fatal, even to believers. Sometimes you do not arrive at the destination you hoped to arrive at. We cannot make that promise from this passage. And while I believe that is true, there remains great comfort to be found in this text, especially as we navigate a fallen world that is filled with trials and difficulties. So let's consider three comforts that we can draw from our passage. The first is this, that no matter what we encounter, Jesus will always 
be with us. For the disciples, one comfort remained in the midst of all this chaos. Jesus was literally in the same boat that they were in. And because Christ is truly man and lived among us, he has been in the same boat as us. And he has experienced sorrow and suffering. And though without sin, he even experienced temptation, Scripture tells us. Tempted in all like as we are, yet without sin. He's experienced the trials of this life more deeply than we have. He's been abandoned by friends. He's been physically harmed in ways that are unimaginable to us. He experienced poverty. He experienced exhaustion. He experienced the trials of this life, and he is always there with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promised, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we can take great comfort in the fact that no matter what storms may come in Christ, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, as the author of Hebrews puts it. When all else is dark, when the storm is raging, when we cannot see a way through, and in fact, we're not even sure if we will survive what we are walking through, we know we can cling to Christ, and He's not going anywhere. In such times, I have found comfort in, in the lyrics of a Matt Boswell hymn, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, in which he sings, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Jesus did not promise to steer us away from every storm. Let us not forget, it was Jesus who steered them directly into this one. He did not promise to cease every storm that we encounter. But no matter how fierce the wind blows, no matter how hard it rains, no matter how rough the seas, we can hold fast to the anchor and it will never be removed. A second comfort that we find here is that when we are in a storm, Christ still cares for us. Do you think that God the Son would take on flesh and humble himself to the point of being beaten, scourged, and crucified in order to redeem you and then forget all about you? Never. This means that we need not ask the question that the disciples asked in their, in their fear. Do you not care? Do you not see what's happening to me, Jesus? Are you unconcerned with what happens to me now? Instead, we can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us. Nothing will change that. Neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what storm you find yourself in, Jesus Christ cares for you. He is with you. In our darkest hours, we may be tempted to doubt his care and concern, but remember that he bears the marks of his loving kindness towards you in his body. Jesus died for you. He will not forget you. He still cares. Finally, in our passage, we are reminded that Jesus will see us safely home. Note that I am not telling you that the text promises that he will see you to the place that you intended to go. But Jesus Christ will bring you to the destination that he has set for you. The disciples had Jesus' words that they were going to get to the other side. Their destination was set by Christ, and there was nothing that could interfere with them reaching it. And so the storms might scare them. They could not sink them. The same is true for us in our ultimate destination that Christ has set, which is eternity with him. We cannot point to chapter and verse in which Jesus promises to cease every storm we encounter, but no matter what, he will bring us safely to the shores of heaven. And because Jesus is God, his resurrection declared victory over sin and death. He bore all the guilt. He paid all the debt that was due because of our sin. And on our behalf, he has secured our salvation for all eternity. Jesus promised, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It doesn't matter what hardships you encounter in this life. Jesus is with you. He cares for you and he will not abandon you. He will bring you to him. The truth that we cannot lose our salvation no matter what comes has enabled countless Christians throughout the history of the church to endure hardships with hope knowing that no matter how bad the storm gets in this life, they will arrive at their final destination. And so Christians have walked into the Colosseum and awaited for the trap doors to open and the lions to come out, and they sang hymns. Men have been led to a wooden stake, piled with wood, knowing that they were about to be burned to death, and they prayed that God would forgive their executors, and that they would open the king's eyes to the word of God and the light of salvation. Men and women throughout history have endured persecution and hardship and toil for their faith, whether that be sickness, whether that be difficulties in relationships, whether that be financial, whether that be persecution, anything that you can think of, they were able to get through them knowing that their eternal salvation was secure in Christ and that they will arrive at their destination. And everything they endured will pale in comparison to the joys that await them in heaven. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, 
when these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Brothers and sisters, we will all experience storms in this life. And, and while I cannot use this passage as others have to promise that each of those storms will cease for you or that you'll emerge from them unscathed, I can assure you of something far greater than that, which brings far greater comfort. Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was truly man, and he was truly God, and as such he lived a sorrowful yet sinless life, and he died an awful yet atoning death on a cross to forgive us our sins and reconcile us to God. He loves you. He will not lose sight of you. He is with you in the midst of every storm, and he will bring you safely to him no matter what? Jesus Christ, truly man and truly God, will take you safely through the storms of this life to the great and lasting peace of the next. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your word, which records such wonderful and amazing things for us to see to meditate upon, to ponder, to examine. Lord, help our dull hearts to capture even a little of what the disciples must have felt at the realization that the one they were following, their Lord, their master, was God in the flesh. Help us not to make the mistake of, of reducing you, Lord, into a mere role model, as something to aim for, as, as merely a friend to comfort us in times of need, though you are all these things and more. Help us to remember that you, being God, did not count it as something to be grasped, but instead humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross on our behalf, so that you might redeem us Bring us into right relationship with you where we might enjoy you for all eternity. Lord, I pray now that as we consider these things, as we reflect on, on storms that you have already brought us safely through, we thank you, Lord, that often in your mercy and in your grace, you do see fit to answer our cries and our prayers and to cease the storms that we experience we recognize, Lord, that you have brought each of us through many storms in life already. And we have the sure word from Scripture that we will encounter many storms before our time on this world is over. Help us to rely on you, to not let our danger to introduce doubt, but help us to remain confident that you are with us, that you care for us, and you have the power and the control over everything that happens to us. They use them for our good and for your glory. Amen.